for the last, I don't know, couple of, even while we were doing the Hebrews series, there was a book of the Bible that I kept going back to. There would be uh, places that would send me there. It's the book of James. And uh, I want to take some time. We'll do it for the next few Wednesdays. There's only five chapters in James, but I'm finding that the book of James is uh, it's small, but it's full. It's kind of, kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. If you look at the, at the Proverbs in the Old Testament, there was very practical advice on how to live, on how to, uh, you know, just do th- right. In the book of James, it's, it's how you and I as Christians ought to live. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to, to turn there, and uh, we're going to take it verse by verse. And, and I am convinced that, if, of course, a lot of what James says says pay attention to the word. And listen to the word. So if we'll do that, there are some incredible truths that you can find in James. Most of us are familiar with the book of James in certain parts, like faith without works is dead, or the part where it talks about controlling your tongue. But all of those, while they stand on their own, they work together so perfectly. And uh, so we're going to... We're going to take some time, hopefully, I don't know that we will, I'm going to do my best, we're going to get through the first chapter tonight, and we'll try. Uh, I know that you have Paul, who talks about that we are saved by faith alone, and then all of a sudden you have James that talks about we're saved by faith, by, by faith and there's works, you know, faith without works is dead. Those are not contradictory things. By the time we're done, you're going to see they, they were, it's okay for them to, to complement each other rather than contradict. It's most likely the book of James is probably the earliest of all of the New Testament that was written. Uh, most have put it within uh, 40 or 50 years after the death of Christ that you have the book of James being written. James chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I'm reading the English Standard Version. There's four questions, and they're going to leave these verses up as we go through them. There's four questions that this verse right here seeks to answer. The first one was, who was James? You have James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. They were one of the fishermen that Jesus called. And he is probably the most prominent one in the Gospels that bear the name of James. He was one of the first of the disciples to follow Jesus. And he was killed by Herod, but that's not the one most likely to have written this. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. He's another one of the disciples. There's not a ton known to him. Uh, Some say that he was the the brother to Matthew or Levi, uh, another one of the disciples, but Again, there's no indication that this James wrote the letter. There's an even more obscure James in the New Testament. And this is the father of Judas the disciple, the one that betrayed Jesus. But again, this is not the one who wrote James. To find the James that wrote his book, you find perhaps a clue in the fact that humbly he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most likely candidate for the writing of the book of James was none other than the brother of Jesus. Now, we don't mean full brother. We mean half brother because Jesus is, uh, had no, no there, there was no uh, heavenly or, or earthly dad in that conception. We know that, that Mary immaculately conceived, being breathed on by the Holy Ghost. But the fact records in Matthew chapter 13 and in Mark 6 that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph. Uh, after Jesus was born, there were others that came along, and, and it was there. And you find something very interesting as you read the Gospels. You will find that none of Jesus' brothers or sisters on earth ever really believed Jesus' earthly ministry. You can find things like in Mark chapter 3 or John chapter 7, They just never quite caught on. However, when you get to the upper room in Acts chapter 1, around the 14th chapter, you find that Jesus' brothers and sisters 
were in there in that upper room. What had changed from brothers and sisters that didn't believe in Jesus and his ministry to the upper room? What made the difference? I believe that you could find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7, there's the understanding that Jesus appeared to James, his brother, perhaps before he appeared to anyone else after his resurrection. It was seeing his brother that he had watched die on the cross, now walking in front of him, that convinced James that this was truly the Son of God. In turn, James began to share this new understanding with his other brothers and his other sisters. You find that James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem going forward. Galatians calls him a pillar. In Acts chapter 15, Peter and and Paul kind of had some disagreements on some uh, uh, way the church should be be orchestrated. Not, Not necessarily theology or doctrine, but just how it should be orchestrated. And it was James that moderated that uh, that conference, if you will. There's no record of this in the Bible, but tradition tells us that, that James was martyred, that he was thrown from the top of the temple and then beat to death with clubs. They say that when James died, he did as his brother would have done, dying, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. James had to have been a deeply spiritual person for him to have gained the leadership of the Jerusalem church over a Peter or a Paul, to show that he was able to moderate a discussion between Peter and Paul arguing and he could allow them to express themselves and then bring peace. It's amazing to see that. You can look at some of the Jewish traditions and early Christian traditions that say that James was a praying man so much that it was said that his knees were as hard as a camel's knees from the calluses of praying. He was also a Jew reared in that tradition of Moses and you can see that in some of his his letters as he deals with that. But while James was an unbeliever while Jesus walked on this earth, it's interesting to look at the way that some of his book reads versus some of the ways that that Jesus' own words, particularly on the Sermon of the Mount. So Uh, If you'll give me a moment to just kind of go through this so you can see it. James chapter 1 verse 2, you don't have to turn there, uh, Brother Andy, we're going to get back to that. But It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James said, count it all joy. But then later, Matthew, or, or not later, but earlier, Matthew, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those when others revile against you. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. And I'm convinced that, that James must have been hanging around the Sermon on the Mount. He may not have believed Jesus' words at that point. But somewhere after the infilling of the Spirit, he began to remember what Jesus had taught. You can see it in James chapter 1 verse 4. Said He said that you could be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 48 that you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In James chapter 1 verse 5, you have this admonition. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And you have a similar admonition of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. A key part that we're going to talk about today is James chapter 1 verse 22. It says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Do you remember that parable that Jesus said about the wise man and the foolish man? And he said that everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man that built his house on the sand. There were a lot of similarities. James chapter 4 around verse 12 tells us that we should be careful that we're not to judge our neighbor. Matthew chapter 5 says judge not lest ye be judged. Or Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 through 5 says judge not lest ye be judged for the judgment that you pronounce you will be judged with the same measure. It's Matthew or it's James chapter 5 that says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eating and your gold and silver have corroded. It was Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 6. It says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And so it is that James 
was very careful when he wrote. He understood some things. God had filled him with the Spirit. He wrote to those, if you go to the second part, he wrote to those 12 uh, 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 tribes that were scattered abroad. This is James chapter 1, verse 1, kind of the second half. Even though he was writing to those who were in Jerusalem, he, this was a, a period of intense persecution. Um, at this point, the Jerusalem church was beginning to be disbanded and dispersed. There was persecution from uh, the Jews towards these Christians. There were persecutions from the Romans toward these Christians. And so it was that as they would begin to scatter, as they would begin to leave, they were literally taking the gospel with them. And they were dispersing throughout. It, he wrote this... Now, now let me show you, every, almost every book in the, in the New Testament, you can look back and see that it was written for a very specific purpose. The book of Romans was, was written by Paul because he was coming to Rome and he wanted to prepare them for his arrival. 1 Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth because they had problems in their church that needed to be addressed. Galatians was written to a group of churches that were, were warning them against legalism and false teaching and James we find that the people in whom James was writing to, they had problems in their personal lives and in their church fellowship. They were going through crazy amounts of testing. They were, there was temptations to sin. Uh, they were catering to the rich while some were being robbed by the rich. And they were competing for offices. And one of the problems, I want you to listen carefully, one of the problems in James was that there was a failure of many of these Christians to live what they said they believed. They, their tongue was a problem. You see that later. Their tongue was a problem to the point that it was creating wars and division. Worldliness was a problem. Some of the members were disobeying God's word and they were physically sick because of their disobedience. They were straying away. And while we know this was written back in the first century, I would say today that the church on a whole faces some of those same problems. People who say I'm Christian but have no actions to back it up. People who say I'm Christian, but their words don't seem to be the same. And so, even though this was written for a, specific, a particular church, it applies to you and I today. If I had to wrap up James, and if, if remember in Hebrews, what was the kind of the main theme? Jesus is greater. If I had to wrap up the book of James in one phrase, it's this, spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. You find that the problems in, in the, the churches that James was talking about was because their Christians simply weren't, go, weren't growing up. They, you, you see things like James used the word, I think, uh, several times. He used the word perfect. He says a perfect man. He doesn't mean someone that's sinless because we know none of us are going to be perfect. When he uses that phrase, a perfect man, he means a man that is mature, balanced, that is grown up. Uh, in today's teaching and on throughout this series, I'm going to be using an outline from Warren Wiersbe. And so you'll see some alliteration, and especially when he does points. I like how he does it. You'll, you'll catch on real quick. And so I'm using some of his outlines. But he made the statement. He said that spiritual maturity is the greatest need for churches today. He says that too many churches are pay, plan, pay play pens for babies instead of workshops for adults. It's the same thing that we read in the book of Hebrews when, when, when the writer of Hebrews says, I want to go deeper in the word, but you can't handle it. You've got to just take the milk instead of the meat. Now, all of us, and it's, it's, it's cool, I love the, the fact that our church continues to have little babies born, and I love watching kids grow up. But those of you that either have had kids or you, you're close to kids and you watch them grow up, I want you to look at several things that kids, that show the immaturity of kids, okay? One of them is they're impatient with difficult things. You ever seen a kid get mad because they couldn't figure something out? Uh, have you ever seen a child talk about something and they, they, they really didn't know what they were talking about? They could kind of use the big words, but it just it wasn't there. Or a kid that couldn't control his tongue. Or, or have you ever seen two kids fight? Especially over toys, huh? Have you ever seen kids just want more and more and more toys? Just, yeah. 
Y'all are all laughing because you see that in your kids, but really I was talking about the book of James because in James chapter 1, he talks about those impatient Christians in difficulty. And in, in chapter 2, he talks about kids that can, can talk a lot, but they don't really know what they're talking about. They don't live the truth. And in chapter 3, they don't have control of their tongue. In chapter 4, they're fighting and coveting. And in chapter 5, they're too busy collecting material toys. It's amazing how important it is for us to grow in Christ. Hebrews brought us that phrase that says, let us go on to perfection. And James builds on this. And I don't think it's, it's a, a, a stretch that James follows Hebrews. James says, I want you to build on that perfect salvation. And I want you to grow in maturity. First off, for you to get anything out of this you got to understand that if you've never been born again, it's going to be hard for you to do some of the things that James has said. Until there has been a new birth in your life. In fact, James says at the very beginning, James 1.18 says, Of his own he will beget us with the word of truth. It's the same of 1 Peter that says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. You must be born again. Again, it's 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 a book of John that says you're born of the water and of the Spirit. It's Acts two thirty eight. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because first you must be born again. You cannot grow in Christ if you've never been born in Christ. If you're, it's what Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? Do I enter back to my mother's womb? And Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. If you want to grow in God, you have to be born again in God. But the second thing is, once you've been born, the second essential is, you've got to look at your life in light of God's word. The story was told of a, of, of a primitive savage, someone that had never been in society and he was able to see a mirror for the first time. And he, this, this one that lived out in the jungles, he, he looked in the mirror. And what he saw back scared him so bad, he broke the mirror. There's a lot of Christians that do that. The word of God is spoken. The word of God is preached to them. And they try to throw away the Bible or they try to throw away the preacher or they throw away the pastor. But the thing is, the Bible, James in chapter 1 verse 22 compares the Bible to a mirror. That we're to let the word of God show us what we are. Which leads us to the third thing. If we're born again and we're going to let the word of God lead us to, to that mature, maturity, then we've got to obey the word of God no matter what it costs. But James says you've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. It's easy to go to church. You could even go home and tell somebody exactly what happened in church. And you could read your Bible. But if you don't walk out in that world and practice what is taught and preached and what you read, if the Word of God is not being evident in your life, then you are not maturing. So we're born again. We let the Word of God be our guide. That's what we're measuring up to. We've got to do what the Word says. It's not just study the Word but do the word. And then that fourth thing, or, or, or what, the fourth thing that's so important is if you want to be serious about spiritual growth, you need to understand that there are some trials and some testings that's going to come. That, that, that you're going to have to learn. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 5? Tribulation worketh patience. And I know as you grow in Christ, I look at, I've seen it too many times. I know that as people mature and as they get farther in their walk with Christ, there comes a moment where, where they say, you know what, I just don't know if I want to continue. I'm, I'm looking ahead and, and there's, some, there's some hard times and life isn't going well and maybe I ought to just give up. Can I tell you right now, don't give up. Don't let Satan turn you around on the road your own. Don't retreat. Just understand that God has you and he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. And no matter what the trial may be, God knows where you are. And if you don't believe that, hang with me till the end of this sermon. And I'm convinced that God's going to speak to you about that. And finally, you don't measure your spirituality. You don't measure your maturity by the one sitting next to you. 
You don't measure your maturity by another church. You measure your spiritual growth by the word of God. And I will tell you right now, and, and we've all seen this, there is a vast difference between age and maturity. I've seen people with a lot of age that didn't have a lot of maturity. And I've seen people with not quite as much age with more maturity. And that goes with however long you've lived for God. Just because you've lived for God for 50 years doesn't mean you're mature. And just because you've lived for God for a year doesn't mean you're immature. It means how are you following Him? How are you following Him? How many of you have seen a, uh, a bumper sticker or something like this that says, uh, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade? You ever found that? Yeah, it ought to hand you some water and some sugar while you're at it, but whatever. It's a lot easier to say that statement and slap it on the back of your car than to really follow it. But it is actually a pretty sound biblical principle. You can go through a lot of the Bible and find places where God uh, allowed someone who, who it looked like they were going to be defeated, but God turns it around to victory. What's the Bible says? What the devil meant for evil? God turned around for good? James teaches us that we can have that same thing. I want you to pay close attention. There's two things I want you to remember. I want you to remember that, that there are trials that can come. Trials are things that affect you on the outside. And then there are temptations that come. Temptation starts on the inside. And we're going to explain that. And, uh, but, but if we're going to turn those trials into some, into some victory, James says there's four things that we've got to do. So I want you to turn to uh, the, the book of James, and I want you to now, or we're there, I want you to go to cha uh, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And there's four things that we're going to do. We've got to have a joyful attitude. We've got to have an understanding mind, a surrendered will, and a believing heart. And when we get done with those four, you're going to realize they're maybe a little hard to get started on, but they make a lot of sense. When James begins to talk about the testing of your faith, he says, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Now this is the King James. It uses the word temptation there, and I, I think that's kind of an unfortunate uh, use of the word temptation. It would be better translated as trial, because you're going to find out later that, that temptations cannot come from the Lord, but trials can. And we're talking about trials at this moment. You see, it doesn't say, count it all joy if a trial comes. It doesn't say that maybe something bad will happen. It says that trials will come. Which means that if you're looking for a trial, not that you want it to come, but you've got to have that expectation that my life is not going to be all, all roses and, and, and peaches and cream. There's going to be trials that come. And if you expect that, then it's kind of easy for you to know God's going to keep you. But if you have an understanding that everything's going to be fine when you get the Holy Ghost, you're in for a rude awakening. Anybody here know that just living for God doesn't mean everything works perfectly? If you don't believe it, I could tell you plenty of stories. In fact, Paul told his converts in the book of Acts chapter 14, he said that we have to go through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. Another person put it this way, we are God's scattered people, not God's sheltered people. God doesn't shelter us from sickness and accidents and disappointments and tragedies. Those sometimes happen because we are human. So some things happen just because of who we are. If, uh, like I said earlier, we, we're, we're disinfecting the nursery because there's uh, been a lot of viruses going around. A lot of our kids got sick. And we begin to realize, and, and the virus that's going around is that norovirus. That's the one that hits the cruise ships and it just knocks everybody out. It's a pretty bad virus. It can last for up to six months on a surface. So we thought about that and we said, you know what? We don't want our kids getting sick. And so we had a... A company come in and they disinfected that like they're supposed to. And, but you know, can I just make something for you? If you don't wash your hands after certain things and then uh, you touch doorknobs and somebody comes behind you, human uh, body says viruses are spread that way. It's going to happen. You're going to get sick. 
Some trials come just because we're human. Some trials come because we're Christian and we love God. Peter said, beloved, in his first letter, he said, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though something strange has happened to you. If you're living for God, you ought to expect some opposition of the enemy. If you've changed your lifestyle and now you're giving your life to God where once you gave your life to anything else, there's going to be something that pushes back. That phrase where it says fall into, it's not an accident. Instead, that word fall in means when you encounter, when you come across. You're not supposed to, you know, make up trials. I'm not looking for people who have drama just to have drama. But Peter also said in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The trials that we have are not alike. I don't, I don't know if any of you ladies and I guess men, if any of you crochet or knit or anything like that, my grandma... Uh, used to crochet we have afghans that she's uh, created but I love this yarn there was a certain kind of yarn she got that as you would get through it it would change colors has anybody ever seen any of that that variegated yarn that's kind of how trials are it's not the same for everybody my trials different perhaps from yours and yours is different from mine but if you know anything about tapestries don't look at the backside with all the ugly colors and knots and pieces of yarn hanging out look on the other side God knows just how to arrange our life so that when we get done we're perfect and I use that word on purpose we're perfect the Bible says the key word here is count Count it all joy. That's a financial term. It means to evaluate. Paul in Philippians, he said that he evaluated his life once he had been saved and he set new goals. He said, those things that used to be important to me, I now count as dung in light of my experience with God. And when you and I face trials, we've got to evaluate in light of what God has done, which means this is why we can have joy in the midst of trials. It's because a dedicated, a mature Christian is living for the things that endure most. You say, Pastor, how in the world could I count it all joy when I fall into these fiery trials? Well, my ultimate goal is to be like Jesus, right? Jesus said he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I want to tell you today that, that my values is what determines my evaluations. If you like comfort more than character, then your trials are going to upset you. If you value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, then you will not be able to count it all joy when the trials come. If you're only living for the present right now and not for the future that's coming, then your trials will make you bitter and your trials will make you hard. But Job had the right idea when he said that God knows the way I take. And when he hath tried me, I'll come full, I will come forth as gold. And so if trials come, just give thanks to the Lord that he's there. Get a joyful attitude. Not that you're happy. Don't, don't pretend. Don't try to self-hypnotize yourself. But look at your trials through the lens of faith that God is with you. God's with you. And so someone may ask, how can I rejoice in the midst of the trial? It brings you the second thing you've got to do. You've got to know. Here's how you can count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All you have to do is look at Abraham. Abraham, a man of faith. What did Abraham do? God called Abraham to live by faith. And then what did, did, did God do? I need you to kill your firstborn son. Sacrifice him. Faith is always tested. And when God tests us, God is trying to bring out the best. When Satan tempts us, he's always trying to bring out the worst. Testing, that word trying, it could be better translated as approval. This is why Peter said that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes it's the testing phase of our faith that determines our strength. Back in the, we don't really do this now, but back in the West, when they would, uh, you know, you have that huge gold rush that went through. If you had a gold mine, 
you would go in there and you would get you some gold out. And you would, you, you couldn't take all the gold right away, but you would take samples of gold and you would bring them to the assayer's office for evaluation. Now the sample that you held in your hand was not going to be worth hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars. But when that assayer would look at your sample and they would assess your sample and they would evaluate your sample and they would decide the value of the gold that was still in the mine. And that approval, there was an official statement that was put upon your gold. You hadn't even got it all out of the ground yet. But there was a statement that said, this is the quality of gold in your mind. Can I tell you today that God's approval of our faith is so very precious because it tells you and I that our faith is genuine. Paul said, we know that all things work together for good. We know he said another time for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Those trials that come, remember these are the things on the outside. Those trials that come, they help us mature. God wants to produce in your life. He wants patience and endurance, the ability to keep going when things are rough. Paul said we glory in tribulations. We know that tribulations work patience, patience, experience, and experience hope. Another, uh, Wearsby, he wrote it this way. Immature people are always impatient. Mature people are patient and persistent. It's amazing how impatience and unbelief work hand in hand just as faith and patience do. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, follow them through faith and patience inherits the promises. See, there's, a, there's an incredible strength when the believer learns to wait on the Lord and watch God work it out. Abraham had a promise from God, but Abraham ran ahead, married Hagar, brought great sorrow into his home. Moses ran ahead and, and, and killed a man and had to spend 40 years with the sheep so that God could teach him patience. Peter almost killed a man in the garden because of his impatience. But see, the thing about patience is the only way you can learn it is through trials. You can't read a book, you can't listen to a sermon, you can't even pray about Lord give me patience you just have to go through the difficulties of life and you've got to trust God and you've got to obey him and know he's got it now we're going to skip verse 5 through 8 for a moment but would you go back to or would you go down to verse 9 and we're going to read verse 9 through 12 I'm sorry read verse 4 then skip 5 through 8 and go to 9 um, so, so we, we, we've got to um, We've got to count it all joy. We've got to know. And now here we have to let. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his, humilia in his humiliation because like a flower of grass he'll pass away for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass and the flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits blessed is the man that who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised him who love him this is important God can't help build your character if you don't let him if you resist him There'll be a chastening. God will have to, to get the rod, if you will. And there's a sense of chastening you to submission. But if you can submit to him, then I promise you he can achieve the work that he wants to do. God doesn't want a halfway job. God doesn't want a halfway Christian. God wants a perfect work, a finished Christian who's mature. Wouldn't it be tragic if your babies remained babies and never grew? If after 10 or 15 years they still don't know how to walk or talk, so much is true for Christians. We're not just babes in Christ for the rest of our life. We've got to grow up. We've got to, to uh, mature. Paul outlined three things that are happening for a complete life, a complete Christian life. Number one, there's the work that God does for us. That's salvation. 
You can't earn salvation. There's not one thing that you can do to receive his salvation. God did it for you. The second thing that God does is he does a work in you. That's sanctification. That's where he's helping you. You're his workmanship. He builds your character. He leads you to become more like Christ. And the third thing, the, the third work that he does is he does a work through you. That's the service. You're created in Jesus Christ unto good works. But he has to build character in your life before he can call you to service. Before he, you can ever really minister, and that ought to be the goal for everyone here. Not that you might preach behind a pulpit. I know for some of you that's the most frightening thing you could ever do. But every one of you, you receive the Holy Ghost because God wants to use you. But before he can use you, he's got to do a work in you. And he can't work in you if you don't let him. You've got to have that surrendered will. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, 6 says doing the will of God from the heart. Let me show you how absolutely crazy it is for someone to let God use them but not be changed on the inside. How many of you know the story of Jonah? Jonah accepted the commission of God, if you will. Uh, well, first off, God commanded Jonah to go preach and Jonah went the other way. So God had to chasten Jonah. God had to beat Jonah into submission, for lack of a better word. And, and a whale swallows him and three days later spits him on dry ground. And so now the prophet says, fine, I'll go and I'll preach. But it did not issue from his heart. Because at the end of Jonah's preaching and at the end of one of the greatest revivals recorded in history, the whole town repented from the king all the way to the youngest. You find Jonah sitting on the outside of the city pouting, hoping God would destroy the city. And he's mad at the sun, the wind, the gourd, the worm, and he's mad at God because he wanted to be used of God without his life being changed by God. And so it is that God has to wean us away just as a mother has to wean a child, has to wean us away from our immature attitudes and our childish toys and has to uh, uh, get us away from all of that. We have to surrender to Him. The testings of God come to kind of get us all on the same playing field. In the book of James, we find that He applies it two different ways. He applies it to the rich Christian and the poor Christian. This must have been a problem in James' time. He said that for the poor man, he needs to let God have his way and rejoice in the fact that he has spiritual riches that are, cannot be taken away from him even if he doesn't have hardly any food in the, in the pantry. But for the rich Christian, he also has to let God have his way and rejoice that his riches cannot wither or fade away in Christ, meaning that you don't, it's, it does not determine how much you have in the bank. And so sometimes the rich loses some things to let them understand that it's what you have in God that matters. And sometimes it's the poor that has to see it's what I have in God that matters, not what I don't have. You've got to count it all joy. You've got to know with your heart and you've got to let your surrendered will then there's a fourth thing. It's a believing heart. Verse 5. Let's go back to, to verse 5 if you will. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by wind and a person that must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded way unstable in all of his ways. The people that James was writing to had a problem with praying. James says, let me help you to pray. Ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is completely different from knowledge. Wisdom is how to use your knowledge correctly. How many of you know people that are really smart but they can't tie their shoes? Mm-hmm. All the wisdom or all the knowledge in the world doesn't always help. You've got to be wise and know how to do it. One person wrote it this way. We need wisdom so we won't waste the opportunities God gives us to mature. When, when James says ask for wisdom, he also said how to ask. He said ask in faith. One of the greatest problems, one of the greatest enemies to our prayers being answered is unbelief. 
James compared them to, to, to the waves. You've seen the seashore. You know the waves, they're up one time and they're down one time and you can't count on them. And I know they say always the third wave is the biggest or something like that. It doesn't mean anything because I've counted them and thought I was safe and they get lamb blasted by a wave that came out of nowhere. That's the experience of a double-minded man. Faith says, yes, God can. Fear and doubt says, no, God can't. And, and it, it's up and down. It's up and down. It's Peter that's walking on the, on the sea. And with one eye, he sees Jesus, the answer. But on the other eye, he sees his problems. And you can't do it. And the doubt comes in. And he sinks in the waves. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? It's because he was double-minded. Don't let doubt and fear toss you around on the waves up and down. That's a type of immaturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, Paul says that we should henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and crafty, cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And James closes it with this. In chapter 12, he says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. He started it with count it all joy. And he ends it with endure, with blessed is enduring with temptation. How are you blessed if you go through the trials? Well, first off, you're going to grow in God. Number two, you're going to bring glory to God and a crown when Jesus Christ returns. In James chapter 1 verse 12, he uses an incredible word. Look at that. Verse 12, he says love. Maybe you would expect this. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he's tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Maybe it, maybe we would have, if we were writing it, we would have said that the crown is there for those who obey God or those who, uh, uh, you know, those who uh, trust God. Why in the world did James use the word love? Because if you obey God, it's because you love God. If you trust God, it's because you love God. Love has to be the motivation after everything you do. I love God, and He loves me. And I have that as an understanding. I understand that no matter what happens in my life, God is there. You see... When, when, when you have in your mind that Jesus loves you and that you love him, then when God allows a trial to come in your life, you're not going to fall apart because you're secure. See, Lot was double-minded. When trials came, he failed miserably. But Abraham... The Bible says he was a friend of God. He loved God. He trusted God. And when the trials came... Abraham was able to go. And so a mature person can be patient in trials. Those trials, that's the, like I said, the testing on the outside. But I want to take a moment and talk to you about the temptations on the inside. God may give you trials on the outside. But the temptations can only come from Satan or for our own fallen nature. And I, I know sometimes we wonder, well then why, would, why, why are those two connected? I know it's deep for a moment, but I want you to listen because there is some incredible keys to this. If we're not careful, the trials that God allows to come in our life that are there to mature us, if we're not careful... They can become temptations on the inside. God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring you to a, to a land. Here, here's the promised land, what we call Canaan's land. Abraham gets to Canaan and discovers there's a famine there. And so Abraham can't find enough food for his flocks or for his family. It should have been a trial for Abraham to say, God, you promised me Canaan's land, so you're going to lead me through it. But what does Abraham do? He turns that trial into a temptation, and he goes down to Egypt, and there's problems in Egypt. Or there was Israel. Israel had the promise of God. I'm going to lead you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to the promised land. If you'll trust me, I'll lead you there. But so often Israel turned the testings and the trial of God into temptations. When their water supply vanished, 
when they didn't have enough food, instead of trusting God, they tempted, they, they, they let their bitterness come in. They begin to murmur and, dis- and blame God and they turn their testing into a temptation. There's three facts you need to understand if you want to, to uh, overcome temptation. Number one, you need to consider the judgment of God. Why don't you look at verse 13 through verse 16. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, when he is, when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desires, and when that desire hath conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Be not deceived, my beloved brothers. Now this is a negative statement, but it's so powerful. And and this is what what James wants to tell anyone that has ever experienced temptation from the devil. Look ahead and see where that temptation is going to lead you. It will lead you to death. God didn't bring the temptation. He might bring the trial, but he's not bringing the temptation. God may test you, but he's not going to tempt you. A temptation in, in one way. There, there is an understanding that a temptation can be uh, a way to do a good thing in a wrong way. For example, is it wrong for you to want to get an A on a test? No. But if you cheat to get an A on the test, then you went about the wrong way for a right outcome. Does that make sense? We, a lot of times, we think of sin as a single act. Oh, I sinned. That's not at all the truth. God sees sin as a process. If you're one of those that likes to take notes, this is a great time for you to do it. Here's the four stages, the four steps of sin. You can look at it as the desire, the deception, the disobedience, and the death. The desire, that word lust, it means any kind of desire. It's not necessarily sexual passions. And, and there are normal desires that God has put in our life. I desire to eat. If I haven't eaten for a while, my stomach starts growling. That is a desire. And without these desires, we could not function. If we didn't feel hungry, if we didn't ever feel thirsty, we might would never eat or drink until we just died. But it's when you want to satisfy those desires of your life outside of God's will, we get into trouble. Eating, that's a normal desire. Gluttony is not. Sleep is normal. Laziness does not, or is not. Marriage is honorable. But anything that defiles the marriage bed is, un, uh, is, is trouble. And it's not enough just to be, there's some people that say, well, I'll just become spiritual. I'll desire all these normal desires and I'll go live in a hermit as a hermit and I won't do any of that. But that, that's not, all that does is make you less human. You've got to learn to control the desires in your life. No temptation ever jumps into your face as temptation It always seems better than it really is. And James uses two illustrations to describe this deception. The first one is drawn away. It's like the baiting of a trap. And the word enticed is a Greek word for baiting the hook. All of that, I mean, the whole reason that, and I love to fish, and and over this this last week I've got cabin fever so bad I'm buying fishing lures, Brother Don. I can't even use them yet, but I'm buying them. But you know why I buy a fishing lure? Because it looks good to the fish, at least that's what I think. It's going to shimmy and shake in just the right manner. And that fish is going to be fixated on the colors and the flash and not the hook on the bottom. Temptation always has some sort of a bait that appeals to our natural desires. It attracts us, but it hides the fact that giving in to that desire at that moment is going to bring sorrow and punishment. If David could have seen that that act with Bathsheba there, if David would have seen that it would have ended with the death of his baby and the murder of her husband and the violation of his daughter, then he would have never done it. But the desire was so great and that temptation looked so good. And that's why Jesus, when he was tempted of the devil, kept saying, It is written. 
from a human perspective, Jesus was hungry and turning that stone into bread seemed like a sensible thing to do, but not from God's point of view. It was a trap that Satan was trying to, to, to lay. And from the desire and from the, the, the deception, you move from the emotions, which is the desire and the intellect, which is the deception, you move to the will and that's disobedience. The moment you disobey, the moment you grab that bait, you're trapped, you're hooked. That's why the Bible says we don't live by our feelings, we live by our will. I know there's times I don't feel like coming to church. I know there's times I don't feel like reading my Bible or I don't feel like coming to prayer meeting. And that's why as a parent, you can't let your children rule and, op- and you can't operate your parenting on the way the child feels. Because the child doesn't feel like taking a bath. The child doesn't feel like doing its homework. The child doesn't feel like doing this. But you have to realize it's what you need to do. So as a as living an immature Christian can easily fall into temptation because they let their feelings make the decision. And it ends with death. Disobedience gives birth to death. It may take years for it to happen. Those four stages, and I'm going to do this very quickly. Those four stages, you find it when, 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 with Satan and Eve. Satan used desire to interact with Eve. He said, does God know that the day, God knows that the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open, you'll be as gods? Is there anything wrong with wanting to know more and gaining knowledge? Is there anything wrong with eating food? And Eve looked at it and said, oh, that's a good tree, looks good for food. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians that the serpent beguiled Eve through a subtly. Means his his that deception was there. And then Eve disobeyed by taking of that fruit. And then they Adam and Eve both died. They died both an immediate spiritual death and ultimately a physical death. Those are the four stages. So the first thing to, to, to combat temptation is to know what the end result's going to be. But the second thing you need to do is consider God's goodness. This may be as far as we get right now, but I I want you to to listen. If 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 for whatever reason, if my voice has bored you and you've zoned off, poke your neighbor in the the side and tell him to wake up because this is going to change your life. And I mean this, not because I came up with it. Verse 17 says this. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. One of the greatest tricks of the enemy is he he tries to convince you and I that God's holding out on you. That God really doesn't love you. That God is, is this trial that came, it's because God hates you. When Satan approaches Eve, he's suggesting if God really loved you, he'd let you eat of that tree. If God really loved you, it would be okay. When, when Satan approaches Jesus, he says, if your father really loves you, why are you hungry? Can I just tell you, and I want you to listen, if I could, I don't want to just scream because that's not a, a, an effective uh, uh communication aspect but listen one of the greatest barriers or defenses against temptation is to see how good God is and if God is good why do you need anything else to meet your need I'd rather be hungry in the will of God than to be full outside the will of God And when you ever start to doubt God's goodness, you've opened yourself up for Satan to jump in and give you all sorts of offers that will lead you down a wrong path. Say, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, it's interesting. So so just when we get later on, it'll be a week or two, when we get later on into the, the use of the tongue, how important it is for us to utilize our tongue appropriately 
if James would have had Facebook and social media, there'd have been Facebook and social media plastered in his book. One of the hardest things for a pastor is, is social media, and that's why you don't see me. I, I'm on it, but you don't see me post a whole lot on it. But, you know, people put a whole lot of crazy things on social media. When I see people, whether it's in their conversation or they say, when I say, ah, I just, God doesn't love me today. I wish God would help me. God's not touching me. God's not helping me. God doesn't care about me anymore. When I see that, I'm immediately reminded right here. When you ever get to the point where you think God is out for you, when you ever get to the point where God is not good, you're almost in a direction I can't reach you. Because then you start allowing the devil to go, see, I told you it was all fake. I told you God doesn't really care for you. I told you the Bible is a lie. And we begin to reach for that bait of Satan. And we find ourselves in a, in a dangerous position. But there's four facts about the goodness of God I want to leave you with. Number one, God only gives you good gifts. The Bible says everything that is good in this world comes from God. If it doesn't come from God, it's not, or if it, if it did not come from God, then it's not good. If it comes from God, it's good. Even if we in the flesh can't see it right away, just know this. God doesn't do anything bad for your life. That second clause that says in every act of giving, it, it, it means that the way God gives it is good. Have you ever had somebody give you a gift and you know they really didn't mean it? Yeah. When God gives us whatever gift it is, He does it in a loving, a gracious manner. Everything He gives and how He gives it's good. And then that, that cometh down is a present participle. It means He gives constantly. It keeps coming down. It's not an occasional gift. And just when you don't see His hand at work doesn't mean He's not working. Every good and perfect gift is coming down, meaning it's, it's every day you wake up, God sees you, and everything he's got for your life is for the good. And God doesn't change. He, he, it's impossible for him to change. He can't change for the worse because he's holy. And he can't change for the better because he's already perfect. Now, did you know that right now, if you look out the window, it's dark? But that doesn't mean the sun is not shining. Did you know that the sun doesn't go out? Did you know that? Just because it's dark right now doesn't mean the sun isn't shining. It's shining. There's just something that's blocking it for a moment. Same is true with God. Just because we can't always see Him doesn't mean He's not working for us. That first barrier, that first wall, that first uh, uh, defense against temptation, that negative one is the judgment of God. Don't be tempted because if you're tempted, it's going to lead you into a death. But it's that second one that's so positive. It's the goodness of God. Warren Wiersbe wrote it this way, and I don't think I could sum it up any better than this. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. See, Satan doesn't give gifts because you always end up paying for them dearly. Proverbs 10 says it's the blessings of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Achan, in, in, after the fall of Jericho, Achan had forgot the warning of God saying don't take it. He forgot the goodness of God and he saw that forbidden wealth and he coveted it and he took it and he became rich. But what did it cost him? the next time that you're tempted I want you just to think about the goodness of God on your life and I want you to realize that God's got it because God brings the trials to perfect us and he'll help you guard yourself from the temptations when we come back next week we'll go into a few other things about the goodness of God but I want us just to stand and I want us just to take a moment and think about what we've learned and think about what, what we've heard because somewhere you probably fall into that place. Would you just close your eyes and let the word of God speak to you. Heavenly Father we thank you today. Lord we understand that you're 
you saved us for a purpose and you're saving us so that we might mature that we might grow in grace grow in truth and become more like you and Lord we realize that the trials that come they might come from you but it's to increase our faith it's to show us that we need to trust you more never seen those righteous forsaken I've never seen the seed begging bread Lord we look at the lilies of the field we understand that they don't have to work they don't have to toil but they're clothed like no other how much more are you going to be with us your children and I pray that you would never let the trial that may come to, to increase my faith Lord let me be on guard that it doesn't succumb to temptation that I don't give in to the enemy and I don't become bitter Lord I pray that you would let me see that temptation has an, the only end to that temptation is spiritual physical death but Lord, let me also see that you are good. And that Lord, when I have you, what more do I need? Because you will supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory. And I'm going to give you praise in Jesus' name.